Welcome to the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. Today's episode is a rebroadcast of my appearance on the River Live podcast and the Swan Signal podcast. Today is March 25th, 2020, and this is River Live, where we break down the latest news in finance, global economics, and monetary policies for the long-term investor. My name is Andrew Yang, and I'm the Director of Marketing at River Financial, and I'll be your host for today. Uh, I'm also joined by my co-host, Zev Mintz, who is the Director of Institutional Strategy, also at River Financial. Finally, we have a special guest. His name is Pierre Rochard. He is a Bitcoin strategist at Kraken and hosts a great Bitcoin podcast called Noted. Pierre, thank you so much for joining us on the show. We're super stoked to have you. Sure thing. Thanks for having me on. All right. Well, let's just get straight into it. There's uh, some more um, huge headlines in the market today. Uh, IRS announced uh, they, po- they postponed uh, their deadline um, from April 5th. Uh, there's the Defensive Product Production Act um, that they announced. And there's, you know, the fiscal stimulus plan is just, it just keeps growing and growing and growing. So uh, why don't we start off with the IRS announcements, Zev? Yeah, so this is just a real uh, quick one, but um, as we know, IRS has delayed everyone paying their taxes and filing. Um, they, we, there was also an announcement, though, that you can now contribute to your retirement accounts or HSA accounts um, instead of it being due by April 15th, it, you have till July 15th. And this is for 2019 contributions. So the reason I bring this up is um, I've received multiple inquiries regarding buying Bitcoin in a tax advantage account. Uh, one way I've seen people actually do this is through a self-directed IRA LLC, which people can uh, research on their own time. And I, I do want to be clear, I don't give any tax, legal, or investment advice. However, or on a separate note here, River does hold institutional accounts. So we would be happy to service any LLCs, um, Andrew. So if you want to open an LLC, you're more than welcome to, and we can service you as a client. Well, maybe I'll look into that, Seth. <laughs> But uh, getting into some uh, more interesting news here, um, the first one is the Defense of Production Act. It's uh, not being utilized yet, but there are talks that um, they can actually go through with um, this order. And so I'll just give a high level, and then I'm interested to hear what Pierre's thoughts are on it. But essentially what it does is factories to, to produce things. Um, now, I think that there's uh, some concerns about doing that because uh, ultimately uh, the government's response uh, in, in a system like ours is mostly going to be uh, political rather than humanitarian. Uh, so it's, it's all about how do we uh, signal the right uh, things through propaganda rather than how do we actually save lives. Um, and so this this act, for example, uh, is is a, a great indication of that. Where you know they, they technically don't need it, um, but just to show people that hey, we we have power and we're going to exercise power, uh, it's it's very important for them to to draw on something like this. Hey, so we so, actually uh, lost audio for a couple of seconds. Um, do you want to like briefly uh, explain uh, what the Defensive Production Act is uh, again, real quick, so people can get up uh, back to speed? Yeah, so so just real quick, um, essentially what it does is it allows uh, the, 
the government, in this case FEMA, to prioritize contracts that, that they deem necessary for the national defense. Um, and they can force uh, private corporations or companies to um, produce certain goods. In this case, it could be um, masks. Um, it also allows the government to create incentives for these companies. And finally, um, they can strike any sort of agreement with the uh, private industry. So I was just, uh, before the audio cut out, was asking Pierre what his thoughts on uh, this subject was. Yeah, so they, they could uh, just create as much money as they want and, and get production going that way. Uh, the other point, though, I think is it really highlights um, how uh, th this is a short-term thing, right? And the short-term measures like this are basically how government operates day-to-day, -day, uh, where they don't really have a long-term strategy. Um, and so, for example, they just spent uh, 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan. They spent several trillion dollars. Uh, they, you know, cost countless uh, military lives there. Um, and and then they they signed a truce with the Taliban, right? It's not like they ultimately succeeded at anything. Uh, Iraq is is still uh, a, an unstable country, and uh, so no progress was made. Um, but uh, the opportunity cost is tremendous because. Uh, the national uh, stockpiles of, uh, for example, masks um, are, are almost empty, right? And uh, these are masks that normally they would cost like 80 cents each. Um, but because the government didn't have a long-term strategy, uh, now they are, they are panicking. And uh, this is what happens when, well, and it's true of uh, individuals as well, individuals who, who don't prepare, uh, end up panicking uh, at, at the last second. Uh, and so that's why it's really important that, um, you know, when, when others around you are saying, hey, you don't, you don't need to prepare for the future, you don't need to uh, think about the long term, uh, to ignore those people and to really listen to folks who are emphasizing the need to have a plan and to gather resources when times are good. Um, that way, uh, when things go bad, you're not just left panicking uh, and uh, ineffective uh, in your ability to respond to a crisis. And you know what's interesting so, is that, like, you know, I feel there's there's almost a stigma to, like, people who, and then they're called, like, preppers. And, and you know, there's this sense of, like, oh, you're kind of crazy you're, or you're, like, catastrophizing. And But, like, if people had prepared in advance, you know, uh, bought these masks, uh, bought supplies, bought toilet paper, like, um, they wouldn't be struggling right now. Yeah, that's right. And it, really, it's because of the the whole paradigm of the economy is focused on short termism. Right. Uh, and we can get into why that is. But um, instead of uh, preparing, what they want you to do is go out there uh, and, and waste your money, uh, essentially, um, whether it's on bad investments or on uh, frivolous consumption and luxury goods. So my uh, one follow-up to question, question specifically with the Defense of Production Act, do you think now that we're in this situation that it makes any sense that the government would exercise this power to force uh, these companies to produce masks? Uh, yeah, absolutely, because uh, ultimately the, the, the purpose of government is uh, the use of force, is violence. And so um, that's, that is their mandate, and so... Uh, it's not surprising at all to see them uh, exercise it. And uh, I, I, I suspect it'll uh, actually 
uh, get worse uh, or, or get better, depending on your point of view, but um, where uh, they're, they're going to increasingly use the military. Um, and so uh, the government is a very blunt instrument, right? It's not, um, it's, it, the government does not negotiate. Uh, and so you know, they, they always say, don't negotiate terrorists. They don't negotiate with anyone. Uh, mm-hmm. They put a gun to your head and they tell you to do it or die. Uh, and so that's, that is, you know, that is the purpose of government in society. Now we can debate about, you know, I personally, I'm an anarcho-capitalist, so I'd, I'd like for that to not exist at all. Um, but within their logic, uh, acts like this are, uh, unsurprising and routine. Very fair. Um, so just to move on to the next one having to do with the government as well, um, and I think this is what has been the headline news for the past week, but especially the last day, is this fiscal stimulus package that's going on. Um, we were talking about it a week ago, Andrew and I, and I think it was at 300000 or 500000 or $300 billion or $500 billion and just buying treasury bonds. Um, and that was obviously the Fed I'm referring to. And then there was going to be some sort of fiscal stimulus if monetary policy didn't work. Since then, it's ballooned to it's now a $2 trillion fiscal um, spending bill plus providing four trillion dollars in um to, from the fed and liquidity to the markets um you know to me this is pretty again just outrageous we're now up to 30 percent of our gdp essentially in this bill and um there's even talks of them actually doing another bill i was listening to i think it was on bloomberg earlier today and they were saying if this doesn't work let's just uh throw another trillion or two like th- they're just throwing out numbers at this point uh, do you think, uh, Pierre, that they should be this involved, or what should what should be going on at the moment? Uh, yes, yeah, so they they have to be this involved, and it's it's much like with the issue of um, you know preparing with food or masks. Uh, you also want to be preparing by holding money, so holding cash, so that uh, when something unexpected um, disrupts your cash flows, whether it's your income, you know, losing your job as a bartender. Or it's on the expense side, you know, because you have to uh, be hospitalized or you have to repair your car. You know, unexpected cash flows are hedged by holding cash. Um, and that's uh, that's really the purpose of cash. Uh, if if there was no unexpected events in the economy, then you actually would never really need to hold cash. Um, you, you could just uh, you would know the timing of everything and you line everything up. Um, and so uh, in, in the current uh, economic system, uh, the uh, government has you know, used inflation to try to minimize the amount of cash that is held by uh, individuals and corporations and, and whatnot. Um, and so uh, just as with the, the lack of preparing for, for masks, then when there is a crisis, uh, there's just not enough cash in the system. Uh, and so at that point, uh, the government has to uh, create all that cash. They're the only ones who, who can. Uh, the, the, the central bank and, and commercial banks, they're the only ones who can actually create new money. Um, and so uh, the commercial banks are not creating new money because they're, you know, they, they're all working from home or trying to. But, uh, you know, they, they mostly have uh, uh, antiquated IT systems. So I'd be surprised if much of the commercial banking system can actually function working from home. Um, and then on top of that, uh, they, they, the way that uh, commercial banks create new money is uh, 
from demand from borrowers. And so they have to have people borrowing uh, from commercial banks. And right now in this environment, that's really hard. Uh, in fact, they, they kind of have the, the opposite problem where uh, their existing uh, you know, clientele of borrowers is actually having trouble uh, making payments on their loans. And so I think that uh, what we'll see over the coming months is an increase in the number of bad debts in the commercial banking system. And uh, you know, this is not something that is, is – uh, uh, it, it's, it's not something novel in the sense that uh, we've seen banking crises uh, throughout the history of, of, uh, of banking systems. Um, but uh, so, you know, we can rule out the commercial banks creating new money. Uh, and in fact, they're going to probably gonna be destroying money uh, from, from uh, credit contraction. Uh, and so then it falls onto the central bank to, to create new money. And so uh, what the Fed is doing is that they are creating new money by uh, not by uh, creating by by underwriting new loans. The way they create new money is by going out into the uh, secondary debt market and purchasing uh, all sorts of different debt instruments. So, for example, uh, commercial paper that is issued by large corporations. And so that way. Um, the, the, the credit markets have someone who is the lender of last resort, right, which is the function of a bank. Um, and so that's, that's, how, that's how the new money is getting created on the, on the central banking side. Um, and then later on top of that, on the fiscal side, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve is not just buying private debt. They're also buying public debt. In fact, they're mostly buying public debt. So um, they're mostly buying debt that's issued by the federal government. Uh, and so when the government goes out and, um, you know, spends money on FEMA or whatever it is, uh, they're, they're getting that money by issuing bonds that are essentially ultimately getting purchased by the Federal Reserve uh, through new money. And so the, the, the government, you know, through some accounting tricks is just uh, they're basically creating new money as they spend it. And uh, that's that's the the other way of putting money into the system. And, and just a couple of follow up questions here on that one. Um, when when we're talking about how the Fed is going out and they are buying all this uh, commercial paper and things like that. The other thing that we're also seeing is um, they are now even going into longer term corporate debt, for example, um, and asset backed securities that are, that are much less secure than what we've ever seen before. Uh, and we discussed this a little bit yesterday with Nick, but it is creating this um, this uh, it's creating this issue where the, um, the banks are no longer having to take on the risk. The federal government is now saying we're going to back up back these loans, even if it goes sour. But if it goes well, you get to participate in the upside, but you don't have to participate in the downside. Um, I, I kind of see this as a catalyst of becoming a bigger issue because now the incentives aren't aligned. I don't know if you've done any reading on that or anything. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's right, and uh, you know they call this moral hazard, uh, and there's there's kind of like an adverse selection bias that we saw in the previous financial crisis, um, and really the 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 root cause of it is that you don't have enough private investors with cash on their balance sheets. So there are some exceptions to the rule. So like for example, uh, Seth Klarman, he has a hedge fund called Bopost, and his whole thing is is uh, value investing. And so 
uh, he, he has maintained a large cash position in his portfolio um, o- over the years. Uh, and so when something like to, you know, the present crisis happens, he has the ability to go out and, and buy distressed debt at bargain rate prices uh, and, and be able to uh, really a- apply a market-based process of, okay, what is the actual underlying credit risk? Is this uh, security undervalued or overvalued? Um, and whereas the Fed d- doesn't apply that market-based process, right? So uh, t- to them, they, they don't have... Um, they don't have a rate of return hurdle that they're trying to meet when they're buying these securities. Uh, their their mandate is to go buy $500 billion of secu- securities, uh, wh- whatever quality that may end up being. Um, and and then if, if there are problems later on that are caused by this policy, uh, ultimately they'll just paper it over and there's not really uh, any kind of uh, follow-up there in terms of, okay, what what bad credit risks did we take? You know, maybe we should learn from that. No, because the the purpose of the policy isn't to make money for the Federal Reserve. The purpose is is uh, to create new money uh, to, and and really it's political, right? It's to meet the Federal Reserve mandate of um, quote unquote low inflation, uh, and we can talk about that, uh, and, and full employment. And the full employment is the really the most important piece of the this right now, uh, where unemployment claims are coming in and people are projecting 20 to 30 percent unemployment. And the, the Federal Reserve is trying to target, I don't know what their current target is, but it's like 5% unemployment or something. So so for them, that's a, a flashing green light of uh, we need to go out there and we need to do our thing. Like this is our time to shine. And and our goal is not. Uh, to, uh, to 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 make money like Seth Carmen, our our goal is to lower unemployment. And so now, uh, you know, we can go into uh, why is that a bad idea in the sense of uh, they're 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 actually you know causing problems in the labor market because some companies like Instacart are trying to hire 300,000 people, but they can't hire 300,000 people if those people are not being let go by companies that need to shrink. Right. And so there needs to be structural adjustments in the economy to respond to this crisis. And the more government intervention there is in terms of keeping people at their current employers, the slower the structural adjustments are going to be and uh, the deeper uh, the economic problems are going to be. So, so with that, um, we're looking at all these potential bailouts of different industries, whether it's the airline, hotels, restaurants. Um, based on what you're saying, are you thinking that they should let some of these companies fail? Should it be case by case um, so these workers can go work elsewhere? Or is this a short-term shock to the system that just for a quarter or two needs to be addressed? Yeah, it's really tough because, um, again, the issue of uh, holding cash comes up, which is that um, under normal conditions uh, where you you don't have inflation, uh, you would expect companies to, to hold enough cash to to be able to weather a storm like this, a short-term storm like this. So, um, but be, because uh, inflation has really disincentivized uh, companies holding cash, um, they 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 don't have that uh, ability. And so, um, it, it then now we have to rely on the political process instead of relying on the uh, market process. 
Uh, and it really highlights the fragility of the system uh, because now the, the political process uh, pits everyone against each other, right? Uh, and so people who uh, love traveling are like, hey, we got to bail out the travel industry. Or people who have relatives who, who work you know, at an airline, they're like, oh, we've really got to, you know, this person worked so hard their entire life. They've got their pension. They, you know, they, they flew airlines, aircraft for 30 years. They, they went through pilot certification. Like, how dare us, you know, uh, turn our backs on them as a society right now? Uh, you know, versus um, uh, uh, others who are like, well, look, I, I don't go on cruises. I don't care about cruise lines uh, going out of business. And so it pits us against each other and uh, dramatically increases the political polarization in society, uh, all because the, um, the, the, the system just doesn't, uh, it, it was the inflationary system was um, forcing people or incentivizing people to not prepare and to not have a rainy day fund. Uh, and so that to me is really, it's, it's too bad. And, and there isn't really an easy answer to it because um, we, 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 one of the key economics uh, lessons, um, in fact, there's a book called Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt, is that um, we, we see what happened, but we don't see what could have happened if we had taken a different course, right? So uh, what if, the, what if the uh, dollar had not been inflationary, right? What if the U.S. government in, in, in 1970, when we went off the gold standard, had said, you know, there's only going to be $21 billion, and we're not going to create any more dollars than that. And so for the past 40, 50 years, what if we had had a deflationary system where people held a lot of cash? Well, I think that we would really be in a much better position in the sense that uh, the airlines would have the cash to make payroll for months at a time, even when their revenues are crashing, because the, the deflationary uh, aspect of the system would have increased people's cash holdings. So even if they had the cash in, in the system, would you say that it would be the responsibility of the companies to keep these people employed? Or would it still, do you think, um, just let the free market do its thing, uh, let those employers, let them go and go to the Instacarts um, and these other companies that are looking to hire? Yeah, ultimately, it has to be a business decision, right? And that's where I think that decentralization is so important, is that um, I, I think that those decisions should be made at the front lines rather than by central planners trying to uh, make these calculations. And that's, that, that ultimately is, is what allows uh, for the system to, to be dynamic and to adapt to economic reality. Um, the more decisions are made in Washington, D.C., uh, the more inefficiencies there are going to be and the more fragile the system is going to be. Um, one of the sources of fragility that we've seen is, is how long the decision-making process takes when it's political, right? When uh, we have to get uh, people in Congress to uh, be, come to a bipartisan agreement and to negotiate uh, things. Uh, whereas in a company, uh, decisions can be made much more quickly. And this is something that uh, actually gets uh, you know, reinforced in terms of organizational effectiveness is how quickly can an organization make decisions? The faster an organization can make decisions, the faster they can see if their decisions are actually aligned with the marketplace or if they're going in the wrong direction. And, and so that's why it's, it's really important to have 
those decisions be pushed down uh, to uh, people at the, at the lowest level. I, th I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, the one other question I guess I have with that is the fact of the matter is um, we are in this position, right? And it is a, and they're essentially trying to put, I guess, a short-term Band-Aid on it, I, you could say. Um, short-term, we see the market, uh, the stock market that is reacting very positively, having one of its best days ever la uh, yesterday. And I think it's continuing today unless it's changed, who, who knows at this point. But Long term, do you see this being an issue first from a just a ethical standpoint, I guess, of the government being so much more involved than usual? And as well as pumping this much money into the market, is, is this an I, I view it as a big inflation risk, uh, deficits rising, money rising right now, the dollar strong. But how long can that really last? Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, during the previous financial crisis, a lot of people were predicting, hey, we're going to have hyperinflation because of the amount of money that was put into the system. Um, and then we didn't. Uh, and so um, the the reason it has to get into uh, the the the, uh, the transmission mechanisms in the system, right, where um, if, as I was talking about earlier, with the commercial banks creating new money, uh, if the central bank is giving commercial banks new money uh, and the commercial banks don't have demand for loans, then we're not going to see inflation. Um, but if the transmission mechanism is different, where uh, the, um, the money is actually going to uh, be given out by the government directly in the form of, you know, uh, uh, help to consumers or uh, writing a check to people, uh, then we could actually start seeing inflationary pressure, especially because we saw a supply shock. And so if the um, amount of groceries, for example, has been reduced uh, or uh, the, the, the food supply has been reduced, then it makes sense that we would see food prices go up. Um, and so we'll, we'll see how that shakes out. And do you believe with these companies, since they are going through with uh, th with this initiative, whether we like it or not, do you think um, there sh it should be a loan? I know you, we said loans. Do you think it should be loans, grants, um, equity in it? Or do you, are you just saying this shouldn't be happening anyway, so I have no opinion on that? <laughs> yeah, um, I so ultimately, like, it, it, the, the, the government – Want, like they, they sh if, to, to get out of this in a reasonable manner, uh, they should have as light of a touch as possible. Um, and so whatever mechanism they're going to pick, um, I, I think that it should be as uh, non-invasive as possible. So really, I do think that just handing out the cash uh, would be best uh, and not asking for anything in return. Uh, and so, uh, but... That, that's just – then it gets into to politics, right? Uh, and people are going to be like, oh, they, they got free money. It's like, yeah, well, that's the system, so <laughs> deal with it. And, and do you think that uh, what they're doing – I know you disagree with their opinion, but do you think they actually have a longer-term plan than just a few months at this point? Or do, you, or do you really think Congress is just going day by day and the Fed's almost going day by day just trying to keep this ship afloat? Yeah, I think that they they, they do have some uh, intuitions about what to do based on the, the previous financial crisis. But this is so different in its nature that um, I think that there's a lot of improv going on. Uh, and I, I so I'm not optimistic that they're going to get the results they want. That's kind of the thing about central planning is that 
you know, they, it, it, it looks great uh, when they issue the press release, uh, but the results are never quite there. So uh, unfortunately, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see how things unroll over the next coming months. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the things that we saw come out, um, I think last week was, or even this week was um, the Fed promising infinite quantitative easing. Uh, before it was like 700 billion uh, for treasuries and mortgage-backed securities that they would committed to to buying, but now um, the language that and, and the release statement that they gave was, you know, as needed. You know, they'll buy as much as needed. Um, like, what are your thoughts on the Fed pr promising basically unlimited funds? Yeah, I I think that that's that's what they've got to do, um, and. Uh, it's it's strange to me that they have to say it because it's always been implied uh, that they would uh, uh, do everything as needed, right? Um, it's not like they, they they would shirk on their duties there. Um, and uh, they they you know people have said that they've run out of ammo, um, but they, the Fed cannot run out of ammo, right? They they have an un, unlimited supply of dollars. Uh, and then their only constraint is about the purchasing power of those dollars. And if all they're doing is purchasing financial assets, um, then that doesn't show up in consumer price inflation, right? We would we would see a problem immediately if the Fed started buying food <laughs> as part of QE, right? Uh, consumer price inflation would skyrocket. Um, but since they're essentially just buying financial assets, what has to happen is that the sellers of those financial assets that are receiving the new money, um, what are they using the new money for? And this actually gets into what's called Cantillon effects, which is that the first people to receive new money have uh, the, the most relative purchasing power from the inflation. And then it trickles down. It's, it's really the, the real trickle down economics of, of new money creation. And, um, We'll see. I think that, you know, well, obviously there are a lot of people who are uh, selling their investments because they need to go and uh, make up for income loss, right, where uh, they lost their job. And so now they have to go uh, dump cash out their 401k as fast as possible and uh, be able to, to make rent or pay their mortgage or uh, buy food. Um and so in that sense, that's kind of a, a net uh, zero uh, because all they're doing is, is making up for a loss of income. Um, and then we'll see if there are people who sell financial assets uh, to, to go spend on other things. Maybe it'll be Bitcoin, right? Uh, they, they've, they've lost faith in the financial system. So uh, what we could see is that uh, you might have a high net worth individual who is uh, selling bonds and from their bond portfolio. On the other side of that trade is the Federal Reserve purchasing those bonds with new new money. And then that high net worth individual then takes that new money and uh, goes to River or goes to Kraken and converts it into Bitcoin. And so we, ne we never really know what the money flows are going to be. And um, that, that high net worth individual would be the first person to benefit essentially where they get to buy Bitcoins at a uh, bargain price, and then uh, there's a trickle down from there. So uh, there's there's no way to really predict what the cash flows are going to be, um, but uh, that's that's the problem with central planning, right? Is that they, it'll have unintended consequences.
And with that, with them buying all of uh, basically whatever debt instruments they want to be buying at this point, um, we're all and lowering the interest rates recently. Um, we are seeing for the first time in five years that the one month and three month treasuries on the secondary market have gone negative as of today. Um, again, to, it seems like it's just propping up this economy. Um, you're going to now see people taking on bigger mortgages, riskier mortgages, um, kind of what happened during the financial crisis, maybe not the same thing by any means, but still the idea that just propping up prices, because at this point, a regular person that isn't interested in Bitcoin, say, or isn't interested in gold, what are they going to be doing with this money? It doesn't even make sense to put it in bonds anymore because they're guaranteeing a loss even more than just inflation at this point. Yeah, so central banks get in on this uh, risk treadmill where uh, basically uh, they've so they push everyone out of cash. Uh, so the next thing people go to is money market funds, uh, short term uh, uh, bonds, uh, treasuries, you know, what, whatever, six month, 12 month CDs. Um, and and then the central bank wants to juice the system again. And so they want to push people out of those short term investments into medium term investments. Um, and then long-term investments, whether it's like 30-year bonds or uh, stock market, right? So uh, they're constantly trying to push people out on the yield curve um, in an effort to juice the economy more and to prop up the markets, the financial markets. Um, but at some point, you, you end up like uh, Japan, where in Japan, the, 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 the central bank is purchasing Stocks. They're actually uh, going out in the stock market and buying stocks, uh, and then they find themselves holding, you know, the majority of stocks, uh, and because uh, they there's no end to this treadmill. Um, and I think that's the same path that all of central banks are, are going on. Uh, and so finally, they'll they'll find themselves, uh, you know, to prop up inflation, they'll start uh, buying uh, goods and services, right? <laughs> and and uh, they'll well, well, and this has happened in the past as well, where um, to to prop up agricultural prices, for example, governments will buy corn and then destroy it. Uh, and so it really shows the insanity of the government intervention when you kind of reach the um, the, the end of the slippery slope or, or the argument, uh, the, the, the ultimate absurd argument. Yeah. And. So just to move on, because I know you have a limited time here, uh, one of the common themes we've been uh, talking about just is debt in general, right? We've talked about the federal governments have, what, $23 trillion before this bill, um, corporate debt globally, $75 trillion. I believe about a little over a decade ago, it was less than half of that. Um, consumer debt in the United States is at an all-time high, and that's on, so it's like a four, $4 trillion or so, and um, that's not including mortgage debt. So, you know, it's... And on top of all this, there's a survey out that shows about 80% of people are living paycheck to paycheck, right? Um, despite being in what's a robust economy at this point. So what what is the reason for this? It, it, it's like, like what you're saying, it seems like they're really just driving people to spend, spend, spend. And if they stop, we experience what's happening now. Am, am I interpreting that correctly? Uh, yeah, that's right. And so basically, because there's an election every four years, uh, politicians want a system that brings future consumption into the present. Uh, 
and, and future investment into the present. And so that way they're able to uh, juice the economy while they're in office so then they can get reelected or so that someone of their party gets reelected. Um, and so it's a, it's a system that really focuses on short-term incentives. And uh, that's uh, the, the alternative would be, um, so you know, people, people take out a mortgage so they can buy a house today. The alternative would be if people saved up money uh, until they could actually just afford to buy the house cash or to buy it with just a little bit of debt. Um, and, and today, you know, they, they buy a house with 20% savings, 80% debt. Maybe uh, in a deflationary system, it would be the opposite, right? They would buy it with 80% savings and 20% debt just to, to uh, fill that gap at the end. Um, and the, 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 you know, the, the, there's the political um, reasons for this uh, for, from having uh, kind of a short-term political system, but there's also uh, economic ideology behind it. And so um, for, and they kind of go hand in hand because I think the economic ideology became popular uh, because it's so convenient for politicians to, to use as an argument that is plausible, but ultimately flawed. Um, which is that uh, if people save money, then uh, we're slowing down the economy, right? And so uh, if ultimately the, the more savings there is, uh, the worse off we are uh, because we're not selling as many goods and services. Um, and so there's, there's kind of a, a negative a societal impact of savings, even if there's a positive individual impact where – uh, as, as we talked about earlier in the show, uh, people are hedging future cash flow uncertainty or companies are hedging future cash flow uncertainty by holding more cash. Um, and, and this is good for them on a personal level, but this is bad on a societal level. And so they call this the paradox of thrift in economics. And so that's that's the paradox. It's good for individuals, bad for society. But uh, really, it's actually... Um, it's 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 only bad for politicians, right? Because politicians have a short-term uh, window. Uh, everyone else is is playing the long game, um, and so uh, it's about uh, shifting the timing of consumption and investment, not uh, whether consumption and, or investment actually happens. And so, when people hold more cash, it's not that they're uh, never going to consume or never going to invest. It's that they're going to consume or invest further out in the future. And uh, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Uh, in fact, there's a lot good with that. Um, if, if, if people in our audience are uh, familiar with poker, uh, the, the, the metaphor is uh, increasing blinds, right? Increasing blinds makes a poker game go faster because it incentivizes people to play worse hands. And so that's what inflation does in, in the investment system. And so the higher uh, inflation is, uh, the worse investments are because people are trying to get their money off their balance sheet as fast as possible. Um, and the reverse is true. If people can have a time horizon of decades, they can hold a tremendous amount of cash on their balance sheet because they're looking for that perfect opportunity. And, and in real estate, that, man, that manifests itself in, for example, you might wait for the right location, the, the right plot of land to open up. Uh, uh, to be put on the market. And so you can wait a long time. Whereas if you have inflation, you, you got to settle for any plot of land. And, and you know, as, as people know, 
uh, in real estate, location, 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 right? And so um, the, 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 the short-term pressure to go out and spend money on consumption or investment actually is bad for the economy long-term uh, and good for politicians short-term. So short-term, though, this would really, I mean, what we're what you're essentially suggesting, though, is we do have to let the system blow up a little bit, and there would be a, some real short-term pain. Um, without, is there a way you see that could happen without there being this huge uh, short-term pain? And the, the other follow-up to that is, how do we change the mindset of people uh, taking out too much money start, and start keeping cash? Like, what's the solution here? Yeah, so um, I, I, I think that the, the solution is always uh, markets, uh, uh, the invisible hand of Adam Smith. Um, before this crisis, my hope was that uh, Bitcoin adoption would proceed as it has for the past 10 years, which is uh, in kind of waves of new adopters. And it doesn't really affect the uh, existing inflationary system uh, because people are slowly opting out of the existing system and transitioning into the new system. And so that this would be kind of an orderly um, uh, shift. Uh, and really the, the, the reason people make this shift voluntarily and we don't have to like, uh, you know, have a political solution is because the incentives are aligned in the sense that people will naturally want to hold more Bitcoin because it is deflationary over the long term. And so if you look at a four-year time horizon of holding Bitcoin, uh, your purchasing power all, historically always increased. Uh, and so I anticipate that continuing because Bitcoin's fundamentals have not changed over the past 10 years. Um, and so I think that that will continue to attract new adoption. Uh, and so from that perspective, there's not really uh, any kind of, uh, you know, uh, like a uh, thing the government needs to do to push people into uh, Bitcoin, right? They're, they're already doing that as it is. Now, with this crisis, uh, we really are, are going into uncharted waters. Uh, Bitcoin has never lived through a financial crisis. Bitcoin came out of the previous financial crisis and it was released in, into the wild in, at the end of 08, beginning of 09. Um, so uh, this is really unprecedented and... Uh, I, I hope that uh, we can continue to have an orderly transition, um, but uh, this, this might just accelerate things and, and really put a lot of pressure on, on the industry as a whole, right? Where now we've got to scale and step up uh, on, on a level that even that'll make 2017 look like a, a walk in the woods. And, and for people who were onboarding um, on the front lines in 2017, uh, they know that was overwhelming and, and the industry really struggled to to be able to bring on that level of demand and, and things started to break. You know, websites started going down uh, and and Bitcoin on chain fees went up to like thirty five dollars or whatever. Um, so I, I hope that uh, we're, we're able to uh, really rise to the occasion over the coming. Um, I, don't, I don't know if it's going to be like the next six or 18 months or however long it, it, it this next wave takes, but um, it's going to be a huge challenge for the industry. So, so as a medium of exchange right now, I, I think you'd agree. We, we use the U S dollar for most things at this point. Um, and then you just mentioned a little earlier that over a four year time period, that centers are aligned for Bitcoin. My, my question to you is 
there's a difference between investing and saving, right? Is is Bitcoin right now an investment or with a lot being a long-term savings vehicle or is it or how how do you view that? Yeah, so there's two uh, different definitions for those words. Um, colloquially, uh, people think of, of of the word savings as something that is uh, less volatile than investment. Uh, and so the the focus there, for example, at a bank, they'll have a savings account where there's really no downside risk. Uh, you can't lose money in a savings account at a bank. Um, you can lose purchasing power, obviously, but uh, you, you're not going to lose dollars because uh, it's FDIC insured and uh, and so it's, it's low risk in that sense. Um, and, and whereas investments are more volatile and have higher risk. So that's kind of the, the traditional colloquial definition of it in, um, in the world of retail banking and finance. Um, but in the world of economics, uh, there's actually two, there's a completely different definition for savings and for investment. So in the world of economics, a savings is holding cash on your balance sheet. Um, and so uh, Bitcoin is a peer-to-peer digital cash system. And so when you're holding cash, when you're holding Bitcoin, sorry, on your balance sheet, uh, you are holding a, a, a cash instrument. Um, and so from an economic perspective, it is savings. Uh, whereas if you lend out your Bitcoin, uh, for example, if you go on, on BlockFi or uh, you know, other platforms like that where you, you're, you're literally sending your Bitcoin to someone else and you're lending them that Bitcoin, um, that's a cash outflow from a financial out- accounting perspective. That's a, an investing cash outflow. And so uh, at that point, you're, you're making an investment. Um, and so it's, it's a kind of a very different uh, definition because there's, there's no um, – the, the, the difference isn't about volatility in the economic uh, sense. Um, in the economic sense, the difference is actually more focused on uh, the level of counterparty risk you have. Uh, so are you trusting someone to take that cash you are giving them and to perform uh, some kind of economic function where then uh, at a later point they will return that cash to you because uh, they either in the form of dividends or interest or uh, in actually redeeming your principal? Um, and so that's where, uh, you know, the, the uh, Bitcoiners talk a lot about uh, trusted third parties. And so, uh, or not your keys, not your Bitcoin. And that really highlights the difference between savings and investment from an economic perspective is that if you're holding your own private keys, that is savings. If you're having someone else hold your private keys for you, that's investment because at that point you're trusting them. That's a really great uh, perspective. Um, Okay, so let's move the conversation forward. Let's say uh, at the end of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, what role do you think Bitcoin will play? Uh, oh boy. Um, I, I, I hope that um, governments will um, kind of uh, correct their past mistakes and roll out uh, mass testing and uh, be able to lift the quarantine in a timely manner. Um, and that the uh, the economic damage won't really be severe, and so people will be able to kind of get back to work fairly quickly, and they'll be able to reverse the economic interventions that are occurring right now in a timely manner. Uh, and then we can just kind of get back to what we were doing four months ago, uh, and that 
Bitcoin can can th this will have awakened a lot of people uh, to Bitcoin. You know, uh, I know that here at Kraken we're, we're seeing record business. I'm sure it's the same at, at River. Um, and so there, this was a wake up call. But hopefully it'll be more of a a warning and a fire drill rather than um, the beginning of an actual uh, you know. Uh, uh, event where we have to onboard the whole world at, at, at the same time, which would be a really uh, a huge challenge and not one that I think, honestly, I just don't think Bitcoin's ready for that. Um, there's just so much work to be done uh, on, on Bitcoin, on uh, layer two, you know, scaling solutions like Lightning. Um, I don't think that we're ready to onboard everyone. Uh, so uh, I hope that the legacy system can keep its S together for long enough uh, for, for Bitcoin to, to uh, really be able to onboard everyone. Yeah. And then, um, you know, so do you think it's possible that the government eventually adopts Bitcoin? And uh, on a similar note, one of the discussions that uh, one of the announcements that came out was this idea of there being a digital dollar. And, um, you know, from the paper itself, it says like the term digital dollar shall mean a balance expressed as a dollar value consisting of digital uh, ledger entries that are recorded as liabilities in the accounts of any Federal Reserve Bank or an electronic unit of value redeemable by an eligible financial institution as determined by the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. So uh, I guess my question is, um, you know, what, what are your thoughts on Bitcoin uh, government potentially adopting Bitcoin and um, as an alternative, this idea of a digital dollar? Yeah, on, on the government uh, adopting Bitcoin, I think that it's going to be a lot of parallels with the uh, COVID-19 epidemic where um, governments are, are uh, they're very short term thinkers. And so um, they don't act until it's too late. Uh, and so I, I don't think that they're going to be able to um, uh, have the, the, the flexibility to actually adopt Bitcoin before it's too late. Right. Before. Uh, they they have to adopt Bitcoin because uh, their their dollars are no longer accepted by their employees, right? Um, at some point, uh, you know, the military employees are going to be like, "Well, I can't spend dollars, so you guys sending me dollars doesn't do me any good. Uh, you need to start paying me in Bitcoin." Um, and so uh, that's kind of when the the rubber hits the road in terms of government adopting Bitcoin. Uh, and they will have to um, figure out how to collect taxes in Bitcoin uh, to then be able to, to spend those Bitcoin. So I, that's going to be a challenge for them. I would um, love to pay my taxes in Bitcoin because, man, I wouldn't have to pay the capital gains on that, man. Yeah, so I, I think the whole tax code is going to have to like be rethought because it was kind of built in, in an age of trusted third parties where they in, they rely on banks to be able to collect taxes and all this infrastructure. So there's going to be a lot of learning to do on their part. Um, and then on the digital dollar side, um, I think that uh, it, it goes back to the issue of commercial banks being able to create money. Um, I think that on the uh, policymakers are running out of uh, patience with commercial banks um, because uh, they want to be able to um, put money in everyone's bank account and when they're not able to uh, do that through the commercial banking system, uh, 
for whatever reasons, right, there's, there's bureaucracy and there's just legacy systems that are just not built to do that. Um, and also the, the, the total irony of um, regulators making it prohibitively expensive for commercial banks to um, KYC AML uh, folks at the margin, right, who, who need help the most right now, right? These are the people who got, quote unquote, de-risked by the commercial banking system where, um, you know, they, they uh, have, have trouble making ends meet. And so banks have removed the, or, you know, deleted their accounts or won't let them open an account. Um, or these people don't have government ID because they're really uh, living at the fringes of society. And they live off of cash, uh, physical cash, not uh, digital cash. Um, and so uh, now we're, we're seeing the, 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 the limits of this system where uh, the government is saying, OK, well, because nobody will bank these people, uh, we're going to have the Federal Reserve bank them. Uh, and so that's why we're going to create a digital dollar. Uh, so I, I think that there's a lot of irony there. Uh, but ultimately, the government's not really good at providing retail level services. Uh, the government is good at violence, right? And so uh, they're not good at customer service. Uh, the private sector is excellent at customer service when there isn't kind of an oligopoly or uh, excessive government regulation. Uh, so I, I don't think that that's really, I, I don't think that consumers are going to choose digital dollars um, out of, uh, you know, be, because it's the best option they have. They're going to choose it because there's no other option for them because no one else will bank them uh, due to government intervention. So uh, I think that it's uh, it's good in a sense that the government's going to offer this option of last resort. Uh, but it really highlights how government has failed uh, in the regulation of the financial system. Cool. All right. So uh, now we're going to move on to Q&A with people in our audience. So if you guys have any questions for Pierre or me or Zev, drop them in the channel and I'll ask uh, the people on our, on our live stream. Uh, but we already had one uh, question from the audience. And it says, uh, Pierre, what do you view as the biggest existential threat to Bitcoin? Um, Hmm. Well, you know, I, I think that um, the, 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 the issues with privacy are a problem. Uh, I think that uh, governments have been so uh, non-interventionist with Bitcoin that we've grown uh, kind of um, complacent about privacy. Uh, and so I think that uh, that's that's kind of a huge issue where uh, in a crisis like this, uh, the government could, uh, you know, use Bitcoin's lack of privacy uh, against us and and really um, harass and uh, um, and uh, oppress uh, Bitcoiners. Uh, now, I, I think that the Bitcoin system would continue to function, uh, but uh, Bitcoin users would really suffer from this. Yeah, and you know, I think people can maintain um, um, privacy uh, through like various techniques, um, like coin joining or even um, you know self-hosting their own node um, software and all that stuff. But um, I think it's a larger issue for people who aren't um, power users, people who aren't really familiar with like address hygiene and things like that. 
Yeah, and the the other part is uh, the uh, the liquidity in the sense that um, because Bitcoin is still in its, in its infancy in terms of liquidity, um, the most liquid pair, so to speak, is Bitcoin USD, right? It's not Bitcoin goods and services. Um, and so uh, I think that investing in projects like BTC Pay Server, uh, it dramatically improves privacy because now you don't have to go through an exchange. You don't have to do KYC AML. Uh, you can really earn Bitcoin uh, in a much more private manner uh, with your self-hosted BTC Pay Server instance. Uh, another question that we have from the audience is, uh, do you see the government interfering with the development and implementation of Schnorr and Taproot? Uh, no, no, I don't think they're that smart. I don't even, I'm not even sure they're aware of what's like, <laughs> what's happening there. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people in our industry who are not aware. Um, and so um, they, I think that what what governments are going to do is that they're going to they're going to create uh, ICO scams, uh, and so we saw that in Venezuela with the the Petro coin, um, and so they're going to that that to me is how they're going to try to take advantage of the situation um, is that when when Bitcoin's purchasing power is rapidly increasing like we saw in 2017, they're going to want to bandwagon on top of that. Just like uh, you know, private ICO scams uh, were, were doing in 2017. So um, rather than trying to attack Bitcoin directly, uh, they're going to try to uh, get people to send the government Bitcoin uh, by issuing, you know, and th th these are going to be of higher and higher quality, right? So we started with the lowest quality possible, which was Venezuela. Eventually, like Switzerland is going to issue its own ICO scam, and they're going to, you know, say like Swiss coin. It's going to have all sorts of great marketing around it uh, so that people send them Bitcoin uh, and in return for, for this, uh, let's call it a shit coin. Got it. Uh, let's see. Any other uh, questions in the channel for uh, Pierre or Zev or myself? I think Pierre is running a little low on time. So <laughs> what? I'll let you wrap this one up, Andrew. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, uh, Pierre, you've done an amazing job uh, just breaking down um, you know, the integration between government and, and Bitcoin and, and economics. So really thank you for that. Uh, we have a couple of announcements for tomorrow. Uh, we will not be having River Life. We'll be uh, taking a break, but we'll be back on Friday and we'll be having another special guest. His name is Tim Keith, and he is the former managing director at BlackRock. Um, well, thank you everyone for coming on to this live stream. I really appreciate it. And uh, stay tuned. Make sure to follow us uh, on the Periscope. Um, check out our YouTube channel. And um, yeah, if you want to buy Bitcoin, make sure to look into River Financial at river.com. All right. Well, we'll see you guys next time. Welcome to the Swan Signal Podcast, a production of Swan Bitcoin, the best way to buy Bitcoin at swanbitcoin.com. I'm your host, Brady Swenson. Swan Signal Podcast is an audio archive of our Swan Signal live broadcasts. Every week, we host a hangout with a group of Bitcoiners live on the Swan Twitter account to chat about the latest Bitcoin news and muse about a Bitcoin future. In this episode of Swan Signal, we're joined by Pierre Rochard co-founder of the Nakamoto Institute and co-host of the Noted Podcast, also Bitcoin evangelist at Kraken, 
and Francis Puglio, founder and CEO at Bull Bitcoin. In this episode, we try to settle a Twitter debate between Pierre and Francis about the value of the stock to flow model. We polled our Telegram chat room before and after the debate, and there was a clear winner. Uh, we delve into several other topics as well, including various hyper-Bitcoinization scenarios. This is a weekly highlight for us at Swan, and we're happy to be able to share it with you all. Here we go. All right, I think we are live. Uh, this is Swan Signal Live, uh, April 1st, uh, 2020. We've got uh, Pierre Rochard and Francis Puglio with us this week. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks for having me. Cool. Yeah, my pleasure. Absolutely. All right. So this has been kind of a recent debate between you guys. I think Francis came out that he's uh, anti uh, stock to flow model. Uh, Pierre's kind of been pushing back uh, that it's actually useful. So I thought it'd be fun to have a little debate here. I know Pierre and I were both high school debaters. So we're going to formalize this thing and hash it out live right here. Uh, we're going to do uh, a poll in the Telegram chat room. I'm going to put it in there um, as soon as we start. And we're going to get some opinions uh, from the team or from the, the people in the chat before the debate and then again after to see if you guys can change minds. We're going to do two rounds of up to three minutes each for you both. So I flipped a coin. Pierre's going to go first, uh, up to three minutes, and then Francis, then Pierre again, then Francis. I'll run a timer and let you guys know when your time's up. Uh, the question at hand is, uh, is the stock-to-flow model a valuable tool for predicting Bitcoin's USD price? Uh, Pierre, take it away, man. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I, there's a lot of nooks and crannies in this one. So I think that we should start with just like an explanation of what what it is. Um, and uh, the the stock to flow concept, as, as far as I understand it, uh, was known about uh, before Safedine's book, The Bitcoin Standard. Uh, but he really was the one who popularized it and um, applied it to, to Bitcoin. I think that it had been mostly like among gold bug circles that um, stock to flow was discussed. but Basically, the, the idea is that um, there's a ratio between the amount of above-ground gold uh, that exists, so that's the stock, and then the amount of new gold that is being mined, so that's the flow that's kind of being added to this above-ground stock, uh, because there's actually, uh, there's very little uh, flow out, so there's, uh, you know, <laughs> people losing gold or of gold being uh, you know, destroyed. Uh, I don't even know that you could actually do that chemically, but used for industrial purposes, and then uh, it's not economical to recycle it, and so it ends up in a landfill. So that will probably be the flow out. But in any case, um, so we can apply this to concept to Bitcoin as well. So um, there's, uh, it's funny because there's a school of thought that um, all of the Bitcoin already exist. Uh, so all of 21 million right. Bitcoin exists. So there is no stock to flow ratio for Bitcoin uh, or, or it's infinite. So that's one way to think about it. And, and we can discuss that because I, I think that it, it's an interesting uh, thesis. Um, and uh, but I think that the the more moderate mainstream Bitcoiner view is that there is a Bitcoin stock to flow ratio, which is that. Um, so like with the Genesis block, uh, you know, you had a flow of 50 Bitcoin and a stock of zero. Uh, and then with the second block, you had a stock of 50 Bitcoin and then a flow of 50 Bitcoin. And so the ratio started at one um, and then the ratio goes up. So the, the, the way to think about it is the higher ratio implies that there's um, more, 
hardness or scarcity in the sense that uh, the amount of above ground Bitcoin is much greater than the uh, number of Bitcoin being mined uh, and, and, and put into the market that way. Um, now, there's also a debate about uh, whether that actually is the flow. So like some people argue that, um, you know, if you look at an exchange, like the, the volume uh, is going to have a lot more buyers and sellers than just miners. And so uh, the, you know, from their point of view, the flow doesn't make sense uh, as, as kind of a, a as, as, as being a meaningful part of the puzzle. And we can dig into that. Um, and then the other part is that Bitcoin miners don't just get uh, new, new Bitcoin. They don't just get the block subsidy. They also get transaction fees. And so um, another point of view is that, uh, the, you know, as, as Bitcoin's um, uh, block reward gets phased out, and presumably Bitcoin's transaction fees are going to go up and be a much more meaningful part of uh, miner revenue, then this stock to flow ratio stops making as much sense uh, because miners are still in this uh, you know, scenario um, uh, forced sellers of Bitcoin, uh, but uh, transactors are forced buyers of Bitcoin in the sense that they have to acquire Bitcoin to pay the transaction fee when they're sending Bitcoin, which is a bit of a mouthful, but, um, All right, so that's, Pierre. yeah, that's, that's your, that's, that's your uh, intro. You want to finish it up with a few sentences? Okay. <laughs> um, I, I don't think that, uh, I don't think that Francis and I, uh, disagree on, on any of that. Right. <laughs> I, I don't know that it should count towards my time. I'm just providing. Oh, fair enough. You're you're laying background. Yeah, okay, laying okay. out the the conceptual. I, I agree with that. I agree with that. Okay. No, all right. Uh, all right. That's just the intro. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Very. Thanks. Um, you yes. want to start? So we can get into the model now. So, uh, so we have this stock to flow ratio that is changing over time, right? So uh, it's increasing over time, and um, then so that's one input for the model. And then the other input for the model is Bitcoin's price, uh, which has also been increasing over time and so also uh, changing. And um, subsequent to Safedine's publication of the Bitcoin standard, uh, last year there was a, or I guess now, was it 2018? Uh, in any case, at some point over the past 18 months, uh, a pseudonymous quant uh, called Plan B uh, came out with a medium post, um, basically uh, highlighting that he found a correlation between Bitcoin's price and Bitcoin's stock to flow ratio, um, which, uh, you know, at first glance uh, should not be surprising because both numbers have been going up, right? Um, and uh, so that, that you know, while there might be a correlation, wouldn't be particularly interesting because you could also find a correlation between uh, the number of days since Bitcoin was created and its price, or the number of days since Bitcoin was created and its stock to flow. Um, especially because uh, Bitcoin's stock to flow is 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 based on time, right? Uh, and it, it's uh, that's why we have a difficulty adjustment and having. Um, so. Uh, this, but there was a lot of uh, discussion back and forth, and then other quants came in to take a look at it, 
Um, and they started applying, uh, and I'm not a quant myself, so I don't really know anything about statistics. I'm just regurgitating stuff that I read on the internet. Um, started applying different uh, tests to it uh, to see if it was a spurious correlation or not, or more precisely to see what the likelihood that this was a spurious correlation or not. Um, and basically, it seems like it's very unlikely that this is a spurious correlation. Uh, and um, what that means is that uh, it's, it's, it's very likely that uh, there might be a, a causal relationship between uh, these two uh, factors of Bitcoin stock to flow ratio uh, and the price, um, which makes sense if we take it in the context of Safedine's book uh, or, you know, just the, the concept of stock to flow itself that, um, you know, if, if we think that Bitcoin's hardness is something that drives uh, demand for it, uh, then we would expect there to be some uh, relationship between it. Um, and that's, that's probably where uh, uh, Francis and I start disagreeing. All right, awesome. Francis, you have the floor. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I guess um, uh, I'll start off by saying what I think the stock-to-flow model is useful for. Because, and, you know, the stock-to-flow model itself is not... The, we need to we need to define what we're talking about. Like I think the debate we're having is about Plan B's specific stock to flow to price correlation model, um, which uh, is, in my mind, used more as a trading indicator than than a, a is used as a trading indicator to see um, when to buy or when to not buy, and kind of like um, the uh, the Mayer multiple is being used as that kind of indicator uh, right now. Um, but the stock to flow concept is. It's very useful to compare different types of currencies um, and imagining that um, you're trying to determine which is the currency that is going to become the global reserve um, currency and global unit of account and you want to compare different currencies and you want to have some kind of objective metric the stock to flow is um, uh, concept is really powerful right so um, uh, the, the, the thing that makes Bitcoin uh, extremely powerful and which the stock to flow ratio reveals is that the stock to flow ratio goes down, it goes up predictably over time and there's nothing on earth you can do that is going to change that. So the stock to flow ratio, uh, you can kind of see it as the, the property of currencies to maintain their scarcity over time um, and have that um, relative scarcity uh, increase over time. Um, so the main difference between gold, for example, and Bitcoin is that the stock to flow ratio of gold will change depending on the market price of gold, right? So if the stock, if the, the price of gold goes up uh, significantly, um, people are going to start to mine uh, more gold and introduce more gold to the market, um, which is going to bring back to an equilibrium, whereas the stock to flow ratio of Bitcoin is uh, not going to change depending on the Bitcoin price. Um, so this is what is useful uh, uh, this is why it's useful. It's more as an, a, a, an illustration and explanation of this concept, um, specifically regarding precious metals and other uh, currencies that are considered to be some money or scarce. Um, so that's, that's something that's useful when explaining the difference between gold, uh, gold and Bitcoin. Uh, now, I think um, uh, just from a praxeology kind of point of view, um, there's, there's two points that for me I, I want to make regarding the stock to flow model. The first one is that the stock to flow ratio is equivalent to time. That's it. 
right? So since the stock to flow ratio is uh, predictable over time, right? So every 10 minutes, the stock to flow ratio will change by a certain uh, amount uh, based on time. And uh, it's time, it's the same as time. And it's also the same as uh, time, but having um, a modification of the time intervals that you're using every four years to make that time like twice as fast, right? So let's say that you're, you're doing um, a, a regular price over a moving average kind of indicator um, and you're choosing time intervals. Well, using the stock to flow ratio to me is the same as just using time intervals, um, uh, but a specific time interval, which is like 10 minutes, you know, the block time and having um, also uh, the time intervals sped up uh, every four years by twice. Um, so, that's, that's the, the kind of the, the first basis is like, it's time. And then the second basis is, well, if, if, you're, if you're buying into the idea, and you know, of course, I think the, the scarcity of Bitcoin drives demand, but the scarcity of Bitcoin doesn't change over time. The fact that the stock to flow ratio changes doesn't change the fact that the stock to flow ratio is known in advance by everyone, right? So it's not as if, think about, think about it for yourself. Like, do you value Bitcoin yourself more, uh, twice as much uh, since there's, you know, uh, the stock to flow ratio uh, increased by uh, 2x. I mean, not really, because when I bought Bitcoin, I knew, I, I saw the curve and I, I saw the logarithmic issuance of the, the Bitcoin units and I understood right away. Um, I, it's not more scarce to me now than it was two years ago. Um, that, that scarcity is something that only affects you once. Presumably, so the idea is, okay, so does, does the decreasing supply of Bitcoin increase demand proportionally? I, I guess this is the debate. And I think no. Um, I think the, uh, the correlation um, is interesting. Although, you know, uh, a lot of people are throwing out cor correlation and co-integration, um, but it is a very, very small time series because we only had two halvings, right? It's not like it's not like, oh, we had like 10 years, so the correlation is great. Well, no, I mean, what we're really trying to correlate here is the movement of price with halvings, and we've only had two. So you got two real points in our data set here. So yeah. I, I think we should really take that with a grain of salt. And kind of the, yeah. the, final, you know, the final point, yeah, so that's it. Uh, so uh, S2F ratio is time, and um, what changes the Bitcoin price is demand. And uh, I don't think that uh, other than the marketing aspect of the halving, uh, I don't think there's any correlation between the halving and the demand for Okay. I gave, I gave uh, Francis a couple extra minutes there. I think three minutes was too, too short a time to give you guys. So, uh, all right. What's your rebuttal, Pierre? Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think the S2F ratio is, is time uh, because uh, it's, uh, there's, there's a function there, right? So there's, there's other variables in the function than time. Um, if, if it was time, then, uh, you know, if w with each block, you would expect the uh, change in the uh, S2F ratio to be the same, right? And then so to, to increase linearly, which is what time does. Um, whereas uh, Bitcoin's S S2F ratio does, does not increase linearly. Um, it has uh, not only, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, so, you know, the, the halvings, obviously, um, but also just because it has, even if, even without the halvings, if it was like 50 Bitcoin every 10 minutes forever, um, the, the stock to flow ratio like would still uh, be uh, nonlinear in the sense that uh, it would be getting 
the, the, the amount of flow would be getting smaller and smaller relative to the stock. Uh, it wouldn't be uh, staying the same. If we had, um, if we had like 1% inflation, right, where so then the stock to flow ratio would be linear over time, uh, then I would agree that there, there, that the time uh, and stock to flow are uh, interchangeable uh, in a model. And uh, we, we can see this too, because there's, there is no co-integration between uh, price and time, but there is between price and stock to flow. So that, you know, from a quantitative perspective kind of proves out that um, they're, they're not, you, you can't do, uh, the, the stock to flow and time are not interchangeable. Um, and um, what was the, the, the second part, uh, Francis? Um, that the, 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 um, uh, the, the decrease in supply doesn't generate demand proportionally the time. Oh, yeah. So um, that, I, that's, that's where I think that we, we, we can no longer repli uh, uh, rely on uh, quantitative analysis. And we have to uh, go on to, uh, like, or go back to qualitative analysis. Because I think that's, that's where this started and that's where it should end. Um, and, um, I, I think that there's, uh, there's a lot of different feedback loops that are occurring, uh, simultaneously. And so I'm, uh, I, I think that in terms of the causality, that it's a lot of, uh, indirect causality and there isn't like a direct, uh, causal mechanism. Um, and that from a, like, okay, well, what does that say about the model? I, I think that's reflected in the error bounds that the model has. And so, um, you know, Francis mentioned people using this uh, as a trading signal. And that's where I think that, like, that, that's a terrible idea because the, the range of price movements that you get in this model is so wide that uh, you could very easily, um, you know, get get caught upside down in a trade uh, because even if you're like one standard deviation below or above uh, the expected, uh, you know, the the, the forecasted price uh, by um, the stock to flow model, uh, the the price can still go further out before mean reverting for a very long time. So um, that's where I think that uh, the the recommendation remains uh, buy and hold Bitcoin uh, and don't try to time the market. And so that uh, to me that it's more about the, the kind of a long term uh, when people ask me, okay, well, where do you think this is going to go long term um, in terms of, okay, uh, I have my, my qualitative analysis on that. Um, in terms of quantitative analysis, which is often what uh, some non-Austrians want to hear, um, there the the best model is S2F, and there isn't really even a number two um, alternative that, that we could point to. Um, now, there was another uh, remark that I wanted to um, to, to touch on. Uh, it escapes me now, so I'll, I'll just hand it back to, to Francis. All right, wrap it up, Francis, and then we'll see. Uh, see, uh, we'll ask the poll again in Telegram. 
Yeah, so I mean, I, th I think the general idea, uh, my, my general understanding of the SOF model is like, first and foremost, to reiterate, it's really useful to compare different currencies, um, maintaining their scarcity over time. So it makes it, it's a very nice uh, illustrative conceptual tool. Um, but I think there's, there's a, a, a deeper kind of underlying um, aspect to this debate, which is what is, you know, ultimately is, is the halving price then? Right. I think like we can also distill that to some degree is the halving price in and does the halving happening um, generate more demand for Bitcoin on the market um, uh, than there was. Uh, and I agree that, you know, I, I, a good heuristic is if you look at the two past halvings, you know, the, the bubble, the, the top of the bubble happened like 18 months later in both cases. So there's, there's, there's definitely this kind of correlation there that's real. And, it's it's hard to dis, it's it's hard to disprove the SOF model as a, the SOS price prediction model because you've got these very two potent and powerful examples. Um, however, I think that what drives the demand and th there's a point that that Pierre touched on, which we actually should drive on just a little bit, which is um, I don't know how many bitcoins are actually in circulation being traded on the exchanges. Um, you know, I've never really looked at the the data. Um, uh, I've never done like chain analysis data, but say that out of the 18 million Bitcoins that are out there, just my intuition, like my, just my basic intuition is that there's like 6 million up for grabs, right? Maybe, maybe six to seven that are up for grabs. And, and, and I'm pulling these numbers out of my butt completely, right? Uh, it's just kind of intuition. And, 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 I, and I would assume just based on the trading volumes that you got like maybe three, four that are like tradable, that I actually like traded um, more than like once a year, like on exchanges. Um, so if you could, if you consider the, the, um, the actual stock to flow ratio, uh, being more the Bitcoins that are, um, uh, liquid and available or in the market rather than the Bitcoins that have been mined, um, then the model kind of falls apart, right? So that's, that's the, so there's like, you, you need to accept the idea that the scarcity of Bitcoin is the on paper, well, not on paper, but the actual amount of Bitcoins that are out there and not the actual amount of Bitcoins that are available for purchase on the exchanges. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think the halving definitely has a huge marketing aspect to it uh, that might generate some demand. Um, but I'm, I'm less and less convinced that the, the supply shock of the halving has a massive effect on, on the price. Um, I think uh, uh, I wanted to share my screen. I've been thinking about the adoption curve of Bitcoin and I see it Before. as being, uh, I, I, I can't share my screen. Like I was trying to, okay. see, gotcha. I, drew, I, I drew this chart out. I was like a couple <laughs> days ago, I was super hungry and tired and I just kind of like kept hallucinating this shape in my head, which is <laughs> a, an, like kind of like an S curve. That's also a logarithmic curve. Um, I've been thinking a lot about Pierre's speculative attack article. Uh, thinking about the Canadian dollar, thinking about people exiting shitty currencies for better currencies. And um, I think that, you know, the, the, the actual model of how Bitcoin adoption is going to happen is much closer to Pierre's speculative article, which is at some point, we're not gonna, uh, people are not going to buy Bitcoin because they see it as scarce. They're going to buy Bitcoin just because they need it to pay their rent. And, 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 that, and, and that's going to be more the same dynamic they're not gonna. They're they're not gonna opt in of Bitcoin. They're gonna opt out of fiat and grad. Oh, I think I got cut off there. But so I I, I think that I think people are not gonna opt into Bitcoin because it becomes more scarce. 
I think they're going to gradually opt out of the various fiat currencies because they become less scarce. And I think that's more the dynamic. So the, the, the reason why I'm so kind of aggro with the S2F model, and I didn't want to be, <laughs> I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't like to be caught in these like debates. It's just, I really have this, this very strong um, disdain for econometrics in, in generally speaking. So the idea that um, the economists can basically predict how people are going to react um, uh, in the, or gonna, gonna, uh, how people are going to act in the future based on mathematical models. So, you know, if you increase inflation rate, if you, uh, if you do this and that, people are going to go to work, people are going to do this. I, I have like an inherent like visceral kind of like aversion <laughs> to that. Uh, that's number one. And the number two is also because I don't want people to have expectations when they get into Bitcoin um, that, are, that are based on, oh, well, you know, I thought that this shit was supposed to go up this way. The price was supposed to go up this way and it's not going up that way as I thought. I just think we should be like really, really careful um, with setting up expectations because as I, you know, as we saw with the, the COVID crisis, you know, stuff like that can happen really quickly. Um, black swans can happen and then the whole model uh, goes, goes out the window. Um, the price of Bitcoin could have mooned, you know, to a hundred thousand bucks right now. And we'd be like, oh crap, like we're two years ahead of the schedule on the SOF model. Shit, I should have bought more. Um, or the price could stay extremely low in Bitcoin for some, because of market manipulation, it could stay extremely low for the next two, three years um, until the central banks and the banks run out of money to suppress the Bitcoin price, who knows? So uh, if you're gonna, uh, any model that you're, you have should be in my mind more proxyologic. So just based on um, uh, logic really and uh, be um, not uh, affected by the uh, by black swans, essentially. All right, man. Thank you very much. I think that was that was a great great take from both of you. Um, you know, hey, I, Brady. I yeah. Brady, let me let me just uh, there, there's a, a side argument that that I was about to comes off the SUF <laughs> quite a lot, which is um, which is how should you think about this supply uh, after the having, and basically you know, the two sides are, okay, well supply, new supply just got chopped in half, but then everybody who trades a lot says, well, there's actually plenty of supply every day. It's the, you know, 3 million coins that are regularly trading. And so it's just a drop in the bucket when you, when you drop that new supply, you know, reduction into that larger equation. Uh, so how do you guys think about how to define, uh, the supply of Bitcoin available? Yeah, I, I think that um, the part of what causes more demand uh, after a halving, and actually, um, I, I was reminded of of what I was uh, uh, tr try wanting to disagree with uh, Francis on is the uh, the amount of data that goes into the model. I actually think that um, the the halvings are are kind of the the the, the big events that you know we do focus on a lot. Um, but the, the time between the halvings is actually also part of the model. Um, and so uh, S2F is, is increasing during those times, obviously not as much uh, as, you know, as, as a stepwise function as, as the, uh, the halvings. But um, if, if, for example, we saw that the correlation uh, held during or only in the 18 months after halving, and then the correlation didn't work, you know, for the other, um, so it's every four years. So uh, subtract 18 months from four years, and that's two and a half years, right? So 
if if the correlation broke down for two and a half years out of four, uh, we would we would see that. Um, and because every every day is is part of the data, um, and so I would dispute uh, the the amount of data that is going into the model. Um, although there's and there's also a lot of different uh, ways uh, people have done the model, and so uh, I don't necessarily think that like Plan B's like is the model because there's it's subjective. Like anyone can uh, put put together the model any way they want. So whether it's by day or week or month or year, um, and uh, so on the on the demand side, um, one thesis that I found particularly interesting was uh, Bitcoin as a Veblen good, which is that normally uh, you would expect that an increase in the price of a good um, suppresses demand. So fewer people want that good uh, because it is more expensive now, uh, and thus the, 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 the number of people whose subjective um, wants are fulfilled by that good is, is decreased um, when you take into account the cost of acquiring that good. Uh, and with a Veblen good, you actually have the opposite, which is a little counterintuitive, which is the higher the price is, uh, the more people are interested in it. And you can kind of see this in like luxury goods. You know, the, the higher the price of a, uh, a sports car is, um, it might attract more buyers uh, rather than fewer. Um, and I, I actually, I do think that this is uh, a very plausible um, indirect causal mechanism uh, that is a piece of the puzzle here. Not the entire puzzle, but one piece of it. And that um, what, what, but it, it's kind of, it's a chicken and egg thing, right? So why did the price go up? Well, because the price went up, because demand went up, because the price went up. So what I think undoes the chicken and egg uh, 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 chain is is the supply drop. So uh, because uh, miners are uh, constantly selling Bitcoin to either refresh their hardware or to pay their electricity bill and their rent. Um, the, if that gets uh, cut in half, obviously it doesn't get cut in half on the day of the halving, but you know, in in the months after the halving, um, that then you have so you have a marginal decrease of uh, bitcoins coming onto the market that can cause the price to start drifting up and then you kick in the feedback loop of the Veblen good until the price completely overshoots demand uh, like it did you know in December 2017 it's going parabolic um, because you have not only the the Veblen good from um, uh, let's let's call them monetary users uh, savers right uh, people the the hodlers of last resort uh, being a, a, a magnetically attracted to this Veblen good, you also have the short-term momentum traders laid on, layered on top of that. Um, and so I, I think that uh, you, you go from, uh, you know, m miners selling less to Bitcoin hodlers of last resort buying more to short-term traders buying more. Uh, and then they're leveraged. Uh, they, they overextend themselves. They overleverage. Uh, and that's the top, and then you have a cascade of liquidation uh, down, you know, the chain uh, until finally you you find a bottom, uh, and uh, you know maybe that that bottom is set by the the buyers of last resort uh, 
which is uh, a, an article that I wrote uh, as well. Yeah, so um, in regards to Corey's question, like how should we um, perceive the supply? I mean, it's a good point because, uh, you know, I was just doing some quick math on my, on my phone there and, you know, the, the supply of Bitcoin that's reduced per year with a halving is like 350,000. There's like 350,000 less Bitcoins that are issued per year. And if you look at it, like BitMEX is like all time trading days uh, volume. Uh, BitMEX has in like 1 million Bitcoin, you know, equivalent uh, trading volume in a day. I mean, obviously we all know that that's not actual Bitcoins being traded. It's, it's uh, extremely highly leveraged, you know, uh, derivatives that are being traded there. But uh, you have these exchanges that are sometime doing, you know, 10 billion in a day, whereas the halving is like three something at current price, like three something billion um, less uh, supply on the market. So um, that's, I, th I think we, we have a lot of academic uh, debates that are that are um, that have as a premise that Bitcoin is widely adopted and it's kind of liquid, right? Because um, as we know, some guy dropping like imagine some guy drops or some, some person drops twenty five thousand bitcoins on three different markets right now. I mean, sorry, we're all getting margin called. You know, the price is going to two grand. <laughs> you know, uh, and it's you. You got a flash. You got a flash crash. That 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 person's gonna get personally wrecked. But I mean, it is gonna cause a flash crash, and that flash crash might um, actually not go back to the uh, to the actual price of Bitcoin for a little while. I think the the actual price of Bitcoin is the floor at which people. It's it's not even it's not even the floor at which people are not willing to sell. Is the amount of Bitcoins that are held by people who never sell. That's, that's like the floor of Bitcoin. And I think um, uh, that's, that's something that, uh, uh, that increases maybe with other events than the halving. For example, I think the, uh, um, uh, the uh, No2x UASF uh, scenario uh, caused a large proportion of the Bitcoin holders to mentally lock in their entire stash as, okay, after this, I'm not ever selling again. And now you have these external factors like, um, the, the, the possibility of a bail-in or a, a bank account seizure and you have, okay, so a lot of the casual um, midterm momentum Bitcoin traders are like, well, I was never planning on, on I don't believe in this thing like long-term as being a, a, a global uh, monetary reserve, but for the next five years, I don't want to sell the Bitcoins because if you think about also the, um, what Kerr was talking about, the, that uh, the Veblen goods or uh, I don't know what the actual ter term was, but that the, the price of certain goods uh, uh, going up over time creates more demand over time. I mean, that obviously applies to, to monetary goods, uh, right? If you have, uh, you look at Mises's um, a regression theorem, which is, I, I guess, the underlying economic theory uh, behind Bitcoin which is that the value of, of money, of money goods, monetary goods, is not based on their utility, it's based on people's expectation that it's gonna maintain its purchasing power over time. Um, well, a, a cool thing about purchasing power is that it needs to be executable for it to be purchasing power. Theoretical purchasing power doesn't matter, right? So if you have you know, $10 million worth of bank stock, you can't buy you can't execute that and buy, you know, three huge mansions. You can't, right? Because you're not, uh, you might be physically prevented for selling that bank stock for currency that's, that makes you able to, to, to purchase whatever you want to purchase. Um, and uh, uh, and uh, 
Uh, and also that uh, the purchasing people's purchasing power right now is still priced in US dollars. So when you're thinking, oh, my purchasing power is increasing every year with Bitcoin, next year I'll be able to buy two, twice, as more, twice as much more stuff. Um, well, most people are thinking about it in uh, US dollar terms or fiat currency terms. Like, oh, I have you know, one Bitcoin, it's worth 10 grand. Next year or in the future, I'm assuming and I'm, I'm speculating it might be worth 20 grand or 30 grand. Um, so that's kind of a strange thing is we're still pricing it in fiat currency terms. Whereas, you know, you still have to, to take into account that, that if the fiat currency value drops like 10 X, then the price of Bitcoin, you know, if it maintains its purchasing power, uh, hasn't dropped 10 X, uh, hasn't increased 10 X. Uh, and in these crazy volatile markets that are completely manipulated, it might take like decades for all of these, uh, different factors to come into, um, an equilibrium. So, uh, like to conclude, I, I don't think there's anything like very dangerously wrong with the SOF model because it is a good analytical tool. Um, I just think that uh, ultimately uh, the, 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 the point is number go up over time. Uh, and, that's, and that's really it. And, and it doesn't really, the time frame doesn't really matter because I see it as being like zero to a hundred, right? So... Um, Bitcoin is going to go, uh, I think hyper-Bitcoinization is going to happen in two phases. I was, uh, this is kind of like going off topic, but, you know, uh, uh, after really thinking about it, there's, there's a point I also want to make is hyper-Bitcoinization um, uh, was theorized initially as being this, this kind of one-time event that's going to be extremely fast, We're talking about like a few years or even less than a few years. And then we're going from no fiat to uh, a fiat to the no fiat economy. But what I realize is that no, not everyone is going to be able to partake in hyper Bitcoinization because everyone's going to be broke and you can't acquire Bitcoin if you're broke. Right. And you certainly can't acquire uh, Bitcoin if you don't have a job and you're not getting, you know, uh, uh, paid for your labor. So I think hyper Bitcoinization is going to happen in two phases. The first phase is going to be the people who have liquid assets that are able to transform them into Bitcoin um, before those assets lose value. And then you're going to have this plateau where people are going to start to be paid in Bitcoin instead of being paid in fiat and buy Bitcoin. And then the, the time it's going to take for people to adopt Bitcoin is going to be just proportional to the time it takes for them to get paid. Right. So it's going to be much slower process. And these are things that, you know, are going to be unpredictable uh, regardless of the, the what's in Bitcoin, you know, the halvings, the, uh, the supply. Um, all it takes is for some outside event to cause some tr trouble for all of our predictions to go away. So I guess, you know, be, just be ready for anything, right? Don't, don't expect, don't expect the expected. <laughs> yeah. But like you said earlier, you know, it, even if that does happen, these kind of black swan events and it really disrupts the kind of flow of, and the adoption of Bitcoin and the price appreciation of Bitcoin, uh, it'll eventually revert back to the mean, but maybe it'll take years to do so, right? Yes, um, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think markets are much slower to, uh, uh, markets are much slower than, than, than we think, right? Because the, the markets that are quick, that we see the market adjustments that are quick, it's all on paper money that's being traded, right? The average yeah. person's behavior uh, in the marketplace um, uh, is going to take years and years and years. I mean, uh, you see how fast things have changed, you know, in terms of uh, uh, intellectually, right? We, the, how, how fast it has changed with the economy and monetary policy. But if you look at the average person's behavior, nothing has changed over the past month and a half. 
right? People are kind of still in the same kind of numbness. Uh, I think it's going to take like many years for people's day-to-day behaviors to change. So Pierre, what do you think about Francis's idea that about hyper-Bitcoinization happening in two phases? I know you've thought a lot about this concept. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe people will have money because the government gives it to them. And uh, <laughs> so maybe it'll, it'll change the dynamic. But I do think that um, historically, if you look at cases of, of you know, financial panics or of hyperinflations, um, there, there is, uh, it, it generates a lot of uh, short-term inequality um, because um, I, th- I think it's Nassim Taleb who said like markets are like a, a big theater with a very small entrance and exit. And so whoever is seated closest to the entrance or the exit, they're the ones that are it's kind of the same concept as um, the uh, Cantillon effect for that matter. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the ones that are closest to to the door are um, disproportionately benefit compared to everyone else who kind of gets stuck behind. Um, And uh, that's, that's why we, we don't want things like this to happen. And uh, it's terrible that the Keynesians forced this on us uh, and, and on human civilization. uh, But that, that part's a little bit of our, out of our control. Um, on on the note of like uh, exchange volumes, I I do agree. I think that they don't they don't matter in the sense of they're like uh, zero sum, and uh, so they they do set the price um, in the very short term. But then as we look longer term, uh, you know, it's like uh, Unchained Capital had the hodl waves of you know how long since the UTXO last moved. Um, uh, that's that to me is the real demand side. And then the real supply side is is the miners uh, creating new Bitcoin, um, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what sets the uh, the baseline value. Um, and what's going on on exchanges day to day is is really, I mean, it's it's a battle between market makers and bots. Like there's not the the bots are not thinking about economic fundamentals or anything like that. They're jockeying in the order book and and. Um, you know, they're, they're trying to scalp and make a short-term profit. Um, and often, you know, they're, they're, they're looking for dollar-denominated profits. They're not even looking for, for Bitcoin-denominated profits, which, as we know, is uh, a big mistake. Big, big <laughs> mistake. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, 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 I do agree with the point of uh, expect the unexpected. Like, um, I... I've theorized about how how hyper Bitcoinization is going to happen. Uh, it feels like every year um, I get a new idea about how I might be wrong or how it might actually happen. Um, one one that uh, Safedine brought up that I found really interesting was this idea of like um, it not being disruptive at all because you have. Uh, the dollar demonetizing at the same rate that Bitcoin is monetizing. So uh, there's actually a pretty organic uh, and seamless transfer over uh, because debt would be getting uh, destroyed um, rather than created, which was actually my my, uh, speculative attack thesis is that uh, dollar-denominated debt would get created to to buy Bitcoin um, and and thus, you know, devalue the dollar. so yeah, I, uh, I I still stick by my speculative attack article, mostly out of uh, nostalgia and ego. But um, <laughs> if if it happens otherwise, I I won't. I 
I won't be uh, disappointed <laughs> that I was wrong on this. <laughs> well, uh, um, why do you uh, the? Sorry, let me gather my thoughts. So, so the Plan B's stock to flow model is, you know, really made possible by the four-year cycle, right? Like if we had a linear emission curve, it, it, there probably wouldn't be uh, a co-integration between stock to flow and and uh, the and price. I would imagine. Why? I, I mean, on that. you do okay. Well, yeah, yeah. Address that, and then maybe answer the question like, why do you think Satoshi chose a four-year cycle? Um, so we we can't know the the counterfactual of what this would look like without the halvings. Uh, so uh, go read Henry Hazlitt economics in one lesson. Um, but let's let's theorize here. Um, right. I, I think that uh, if with if we had not had the halvings and instead we had a steady drip where with every block the block subsidy was decreasing so that um, you know from from a scarcity perspective we still get to a ceiling of 21 million bitcoin over the same number of years it's just smoothed out um, i think that in terms of how that would affect uh, the the stock to flow model um, it would affect the correlation parameters. So the, the specific number um, that, uh, you know, makes the regression, I think would be different. Uh, I don't think that, I, I still think that the correlation would exist and I still think that the co-integration would, would be there. Um, and so uh, now I have no way of proving this, obviously. It's of course, of course. It's really uh, theoretical. Um, but the, the, the reason I think that is because um, the, uh, I, I, the, to me, the halvings are overrated in a sense of um, how, uh, how much they affect. Because in the earlier, what I was talking about in terms of the shock that the supply reduction has, um, you would still have... Uh, so you wouldn't have the layer one shock of miners getting their output cut in half. Um, but uh, so you, instead you would have a steady right, shock, right? So you would have miners steadily putting less coins into the market, um, but you would still have the top layer momentum traders who are the ones who are really, to me, causing the wave. Um, and because they're the short-term price setters. And, um, and I also think that the, the Bitcoin holders of last resort uh, do get carried away in the euphoria as well. They're not immune to it either. Um, so in any case, uh, the, I still think that we would have price waves. Like I don't think that the price could just linearly go up. Um, and so then it kind of gets into a human psychology of, how long does it take for the psychology to repair itself after the trauma of a bull and bear cycle? Um, and I, I don't think that the havings, um, or, okay, so maybe, maybe this is, uh, maybe I'm wrong on this. Maybe the trauma would take longer to repair without the havings in the sense that you could have 10 years between peak to trough which is usually what it is in the stock market, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it is possible that the halvings are uh, 
essentially providing a, a, a boost to psychology uh, at the right time uh, and are accelerating hyper-Bitcoinization faster than it would otherwise happen. Uh, yeah. But I still think it would otherwise happen. Right. Do you think Satoshi intended that? Thought this through? I mean, there was so much that was intentional, you know, in the protocol. I, I mean, no, I, I think that... I think it was this, this, the, uh, the simplicity of the engineering implementation um, is, is what was driving that. Uh, I, I, I think that it would be more complex to have every block um, have a reduction in the block reward. Uh, I, I could try my hand at programming that and then see maybe if it is as simple as um, what he did. But uh, if you look at the having function, it's pretty elegant. It's pretty yeah. concise. So uh, I think there might be just an engineering argument for it. And not that he was like a uh, mad genius extrapolating human psychology and, and thinking <laughs> about the bull and bear cycle. Some people think it has something to do with the presidential cycle too, because you know, Bitcoin was launched in you know, the, the midst of a presidential election. And to keep that going every four yeah. years. Yeah. Any thoughts on that, Francis? Um, yeah, well, um, it's, it's a... Obviously, we can't know what would have happened, as Pierre said, uh, if there was no halving, uh, the effect on the price and the correlation and stuff like that. And to some degree, it doesn't really matter because depending on which stock to flow ratio model that you use, um, I think Plan B's specific one uses a 365-day moving average for the price. Um, and there's, there's one side that I'm looking at now that has a 10-day moving average and the other one has a 365-day moving average. And, you know, the longer time interval um, that you take, the more smoothed out it is. So um, uh, if, if we hadn't had any halvings at all, um, I think my intuition is that we would have probably had the same kind of spikes in the same kind of bubbles overall. Um, because the price discovery only really happens in those kind of lows, very lows and very highs, right? Because the huddler, the huddler of last resort will not always be a huddler of last resort, right? When the, when the, when the main multiple hits like seven or six, right? Where, you know, you're, the price right now compared to the moving average at the last 200 days or something like that is like, it's 7X what it was. A lot of the huddlers of life are like, well, you know, I'll sell and buy more Bitcoin in three months as, as is tradition. Yeah, I feel like everyone's got that, got that little number. Like, I'm never going to sell this 75%, yeah. but this 25%, if we go crazy, I'm going to, you know, take a little profit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Same, same, same with the uh, same with the bottom, right? Um, at some point, the on paper price on the exchanges uh, it can go down to two thousand bucks, for example. Uh, but I don't think it could stay that uh, stay there for long, right? I think uh, uh, I'm not a not, not doing financial analysis here, but I think the uh, the floor of six, you know, five 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 hundred six that we're seeing now. I mean that is indicative that we, we might see happening in the in the near term it's probably closer to the the hunters of last resort stash uh, uh or you know stock i guess uh that you have than uh than, than another price um and um regarding the so i th i think uh, uh the four-year cycle is super interesting to to try to figure out like why did he take four year i agree with pierre 100 that uh, it, it's it's much easier to do these kind of halvings Every, at a set period of time than to do it in every block. I think every block would have been um, a much more difficult uh, challenge uh, to implement. Um, but why did he take uh, four instead of 10, instead of 20? Uh, I think 
there's there's a trade-off to having more inflation in the beginning, uh, which is that um, you, 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 you're subsidizing the early adopters more, right? So it's kind, of a, it's kind of like, to which degree do I want to subsidize the early adopters more than the late adopters? And to which degree, like with, what's the speed that we need for bootstrapping the network? Um, and I think that perhaps one of the things that Satoshi was thinking about was, okay, I really need to incentivize people to work on this quickly uh, because we want Bitcoin. Bitcoin is not going to stay low profile. And as soon as it hits high profile, it's going to get attacked, right? So this is why, for example, one of the altcoins have fair launches um, that are organic emergent adoption because they need to kind of bootstrap their network uh, in the beginning to resist these hash rate attacks. So Satoshi was probably aware of that, aware of the fact that Bitcoin, Bitcoin was not secure, uh, uh, was not going to be secure for a while, and that um, as soon as it hits kind of like mainstream adoption, it's, it's going to be a big problem. It's going to, people are going to get attacked. A so he might have wanted to incentivize a very quick bootstrapping of the network with this, you know, hyperinflation of 50 Bitcoins for 10 minutes, uh, essentially. Um, <laughs> although, uh, so like one of the things that I, you know, that I always thought I would tell Satoshi was that, you know, if this is your logic, if your logic was to incentivize people to bootstrap the network early on by giving uh, a disproportionate high reward in the first four years, instead of making it something more like a gradual, like halving uh, every, uh, potentially every 10 years, right? Uh, I think that halving is really cool, like that it's like, like the actual 2x down. Um, perhaps it could have been maybe uh, 10 years instead of four years. Uh, and I would just say like people, I don't think were motivated by having a lot of Bitcoins early to bootstrap the network. I think there were the, the, the first two years, there was a much higher ideological motive than uh, I, I want to have a lot of Bitcoins now motive because as we saw, a lot of the early adopters that built the infrastructure actually sold off much of yeah. the coins then end yeah. up holding them uh, in the long term. Um, but it's, it's, it's the, the, in politics, you know, people are used to having a, an attention. Most people think about politics only three months to six months every four years. And there seems to be some kind of Lindy effect or, you know, some kind of uh, Nash equilibrium to that because all the democracies tend to be around the four or five year mark. Um, yeah. Might be something in our human psychology that's geared to that number and then maybe Satoshi said hey yeah there's a there might be a reason why everything that's a governance change is four years so mm -hmm. yeah uh, makes sense yeah. something to do with our with our you know life expect expectancy or something Corey do you have any thoughts on yeah. the t t timing of the Bitcoin white paper network launch you know the context yeah, I mean, that it was launching? yeah just thinking about you know was it accidental that the white paper was published published in the middle of the depths of GFC one, now that we're in GFC two. Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence at all um, because we know Satoshi had a lot of different interests and presumably was working on many different things. And this was something that was probably in progress for quite some time. And I think in the, in, you know, watching the GFC rolling start, you had plenty of time to sort of watch it unfold. It was early 2007 that the cracks started to show and, you had people like Bill Gross from PEMCO putting out podcasts every day saying this thing's falling apart. And you had the Goldman distressed bank loan sales desk going from, you know, from long to short and all these different things. So like it was kind of predictable that something bad was happening. And, and, you know, I think that probably 
in 2008 when it really got going. You had, you know, Lehman in, in August of, uh, of 2008. And you could imagine that that's when Satoshi, you know, sat down and was like, okay, I got to finish this thing, you know? And it was, this, it was this urgency that made it come out. So it's not a coincidence in my mind that it came out when it did. It was, oh my God, we actually, I, I kind of need to do this. And this is the time that people are actually going to pay attention and, and actually care about this thing that I, that I put out. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think the, the most interesting part of uh, the, the creation of Bitcoin was that the, uh, the monetary policy is completely avoided in the white paper. There's no mention mm -hmm. at all of, of any economic uh, or monetary economics in there. And um, I think, uh, I think you're right, 100% right, Corey. It, 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 he may have been thinking, okay, I need some help. I need some feedback right now. He might have been stuck on that problem for years, as far as we know. Um, and, and my intuition, and this is like complete speculation out of nowhere, I don't know how I developed this idea, uh, but I, I started to develop this idea that Satoshi may have wanted to have a linear, and there's no evidence of this at all, but I, 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 I there's like an intuition in my mind that Hal Finney was the one that suggested the, the, the supply cap. And that um, when Satoshi launched a white paper, he was, I, and I, I, I generally don't remember how I got this idea. So like, nobody should think that I have some information that I'm not sharing. I just, I just got this feeling and now, now it's just stuck with me. But I really had the feeling that Hal Finney was the one that got the idea in Satoshi's head to do the, the, the halving and the gold-like uh, stock to flow um, uh, versus a linear kind of increase in the supply because a linear increase in Bitcoin supply um, would have been uh, still sound money, right? It still would have been pretty good sound money. Um, uh, uh, but but for, for, for some reason, it's just not as marketable. I don't know. It's just, it's just the marketing aspect of having this logarithmic curve is just so perfect. Um, and I think that uh, uh, the Satoshi's engineering mind may have been geared more towards a linear curve, whereas um, I think Hal had a very deep, extremely uh uh economic mind uh he may have been the one that suggested it uh i like to think that but i don't know all right well guys it's 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 april 1st it's the dawn of uh of q2 uh and uh you know i i, I hear both of you guys have plans to uh, launch shit coins this quarter so uh, <laughs> i just wanted to hear about uh each take a turn and tell me about your particular shit coin and uh, if you've gotten names for it you can also crowdsource the names for your shit coins if you like, um, but it seems appropriate to talk about our, our yes. new shit coins uh, on April first. Yes, um, yes, absolutely. Go ahead, uh, go ahead Pierre. Go ahead. You, you can. Uh, so I'm excited to announce WhoCoin. Uh, it's a coin that's going to finance the World Health Organization, uh, and uh, it's it's mostly <laughs> going to be focused on uh, putting out the right messages. Right. So uh, masks don't work. Uh, and and that China had nothing to do with this, uh, and that uh, we're all in this together. So uh, WhoCoin, it's going to be uh, launching today. You can uh, buy it. And really what this token is going to enable, it's an entire new ecosystem, right? Uh, where previous ecosystems, uh, the, the scamming was kind of just focused on uh, the, the token itself. Uh, but here we're going to really scam people on health, right, uh, which I think is also important uh, and really expand the grifting to 
to, to cause as much human suffering as possible. Uh, so that's uh, WhoCoin, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll see it on Coin Market Cap soon. Yeah, definitely hit us up if you guys want to get in on the pre-sale. Um, you know, we're going to be the first exchange to uh, to list WhoCoin, and uh, we're we're selling it like super pre-mine on this one, like eighty percent pre-mine. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> Uh, well, ironically, I am actually going to announce something. I was going to announce something today, uh, but I realized that it was uh, April 1st, so uh, we decided to push it to tomorrow. And I hate to do like pre-pre-announcements. I would just, if it was only me, I, I, like, I hate that I'm the one that's doing that. Uh, if it was only me, I would have just announced it already. Um, but uh, there's, a, there's, you know, two other uh, partners in the project that I'm working on that, you know, you got to respect the, the marketing department's timelines. Um, but generally speaking, we're going to be uh, announcing a prepaid card product, prepaid product that makes it easier to buy Bitcoin. Uh, we're going to be announcing that um, tomorrow. So uh, pretty excited uh, to, to announce this project. So that's, that's actually real. That's, that, yeah. that's just just that. confirming that yes. the announcement tomorrow will be real because yes. it will happen on the second. Um, yes. Okay, yes. well, well sticking with the theme... Sticking with yes. the theme of, uh, of April 1st, uh, Brady and I and, and Jan are, are really proud to announce that uh, we're launching swantron.com. Um, so it's going to be uh, the best way to, uh, to stack suns. Um, so yeah, lowest fees on, uh, on stacking Tron. It's, uh, it's the future. Uh, also, uh, uh, some friends of ours around the world are, are getting in on the, on the game. So uh, Ruben is launching uh, Git Shitter over in Europe. So that's pretty cool. And uh, nice. And uh, we also have uh, Alex launching the Amber Crap over in uh, over in Australia, also nice. selling Tron on DCA. So that's pretty cool. It's, it's where it's where everything's heading. It's definitely yeah. where everything's heading. Um, do we have any? I did Litecoin the Litecoin announcement like two years ago on April first or something. I've already I've already announced my shitcoin April Fool's thing a few years ago. I think. Hmm. Well, we have one question we can finish up on from the chat room. Uh, so this is a question about the future. It's kind of really, it's really two questions and it's, it's kind of a, you know, kind of the optimistic uh, question and the pessimistic version of the question. So in the future, in a Bitcoin future, uh, how do we expect people, you know, I guess let's put it this way. How do we expect behavior to change uh, in the positive and in the negative? Like, what will people do that's healthier and better for the community and human society in general? And like what devious ways will humans find uh, to cheat the system in a, in a Bitcoin world? Uh, I don't think there's any of the latter. Uh, okay. So uh, any, anything now, different, nothing different there. Well, I guess you could, you could already point to existing trends, right? So ransomware is obviously uh, a big negative that's enabled by Bitcoin. Um, and, uh, uh, but that's, that's really, that, that's all that comes to mind. I think that there's going to be a continuation of that and maybe an amplification, but, um, ultimately that's going to cause more investment in, uh, what they call cybersecurity. So I guess, uh, that, uh, is something that should have been happening anyway, uh, and thus is, is getting motivated by, by Bitcoin. Um, but on, on the positive, like, I, I think that the, um, the whole, and, and it's funny because this is something people complain about the HODL meme, right? This is the strongest meme in the ecosystem by far. I, I, I don't think anyone would dispute that. And the reason why I think that's the case is because 
the economic fundamentals are there. And so it's a, a meme that has repeatedly gotten reinforced. And um, I think that it's only going to get more amplified and even bigger to where essentially, you know, in, in the fiat system, savings, uh, you know, holding cash uh, really got uh, a bad rap and the, the pendulum swung in the direction of, you know, you, sh you should be in an a index fund for the stock market instead of holding cash. Um, and I think the, the pendulum is going to swing to the other direction and it's actually going to far overshoot. And, um, but that's not a problem because there's nothing wrong with savings and holding cash. Um, just that it is going to overshoot. So I think that uh, people are for, for generations going to be holding way more cash than, you know, the equilibrium amount uh, that they uh, uh, would rationally be holding. Uh, you know, I put those in air quotes. Um, but uh, that, uh, so this is, and this is good because uh, I really think that we economists have been misunderstanding why holding cash is a good thing. And it really comes to uh, a head when you have a crisis like we had with COVID-19, where basically the reason we hold cash is to hedge future cash flow uncertainty. And we don't know what that cash flow uncertainty is going to be. It can be good in the sense of an unexpected investment opportunity or an unexpected vacation with friends, right? Um, or it can be bad in the sense of losing your job, losing your income, uh, and uh, you know, that having your life disrupted that way, as, as we've seen with uh, this quarantining stuff going on. Um, and that, so that's kind of at the microeconomic level, and I think that scales up to the macro level as well. And so when we don't hold enough cash as a society, we have a very fragile system, and when we hold lots of cash, uh, we don't have to worry about things like price gouging, right? People complain about price gouging because they don't have the cash to pay that price. Not, not because there's anything inherently wrong with price gouging. Uh, in fact, that price gouging is a good thing because it creates a profit motive to reallocate resources such that, you know, we're, we're, we've got more masks or whatever the actual underlying good is. Um, and so I, I really think that the pendulum swinging in the other direction is going to be uh, fantastic for society. And we're going to get to debunk Keynesianism like uh, empirically, <laughs> which yeah. is uh, nice for a change. I'm going to give it just a quick real life example of uh, what price gouging did that was actually great for America <laughs> in this crisis. So a really good friend of mine uh, has had a chemical plant with his dad for like the last 20 years uh, down in the Dallas Fort Worth area. And their primary product for the last decade or so has been making a few ingredients for uh, LCD screens, primarily exported to China. Uh, that dried up pretty significantly <laughs> with the coronavirus uh, rolling out. They quickly saw the ridiculous markups and just the lack of hand sanitizer all over the country. And had schools all over Texas and hospital. He lives in New York most of the time. Uh, hospitals throughout the New York area um, and first responders, you know, looking for sanitizer. And they took about 10 days to retool their plant and uh, they're supplying uh, schools and first, first responders, hospitals throughout Connecticut, and uh, just basically turned their whole factory into a hand sanitizer manufacturer. 
Um, and there is enough margin in there to, to do that and become a wholesaler very quick, very quickly. Um, so that's, I just think is a great real world example of that. And so then if you had the government, you know, installing price controls, you would have the shortage and nobody supplying it. So let's, let's I, get uh, you can't, well, there's, there's one more topic we wanted to fit in, yeah. um, which yeah. is, um, you know, a lot of, we've, we've seen a few people commenting on, you know, Bitcoin core developers talking about like, are we ready for a massive influx and a massive increase in network activity and like, you know, 10 X users or hundred X users over the next few years. And I just wanted to hear both of you guys, uh, talk a little bit about, um, you know, cart before the horse and can you really get the resources to build out the network and the infrastructure before the demand is there? Or does the demand kind of have to come first and then everybody rushes in to, to play catch up? How does that work? How has it worked historically and how do you expect it to work over the next few years? Francis, you go first. I think in terms of, yeah, in terms of like the actual Bitcoin network, um, I think there's much more that like core developers need to do to scale Bitcoin. Um, I might, am, am I freezing right now? Is my, okay, my, my internet connection is really bad. So if I continue to freeze, just, just cut me off. Um, but I don't think there's a lot that the Bitcoin core developers need to do right now for the network. I mean, the kind of improvements that we're looking at are like uh, Merkleized, you know, abstract syntax trees that make certain types of smart contracts more private or or so on and so forth. I mean, we're really at the optimization phase of the Bitcoin network. I think that's 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 perfectly fine. Um, I think that the 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 bottlenecks with adoption is it like transaction speed or network speed or or transaction throughput. I think it's definitely a UX UI challenge at the application uh, layer, at the exchange layer, and at the custody layer. I think that's um, what's really the problem. As stupid as it sounds, we're, the the main bottleneck is how do we get people to safeguard their seeds. And not lose their bitcoins. Um, I think that's that's the that's the main issue still. Um, and uh, if there is to be some kind of uh, intermediary custodial, custodial model where okay, some people can't be trusted to. I, I mean, some people don't trust themselves to to hold their own to, to their bitcoins. And I think the the culture shift required for that to be like possible, like a hundred percent custody over the network. We're talking about like a you know like a like a generation, right? talking about like 20, 30 years before, I think before there's the, like a global culture of responsibility and self-reliance um, that's instilled enough so that people will be very comfortable holding their own keys. Um, and we're going to have, for example, like 90% of the Bitcoins out there are going to be in self-custody. I think if there was to be mass adoption right now, we would have like 5% of the Bitcoins being self-custody and that might be a problem. Um, so I think this is like more the, this is like more the, the things that we're talking about in terms of like lightning network. Um, I think we have a few years left for it to be um, a very good mainstream and like a mainstream tool. I used to be much more bearish on Lightning, um, but I'm becoming more bullish on Lightning over time because I think I think a lot of the Lightning community has respond, responded well to the to the challenges of UX UI on Lightning. For example, the the the, uh, the UX challenges of um, of invoices and uh, be getting paid in Lightning uh, is significantly more difficult than paying in Lightning, uh, which had caused in the network a, 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 a imbalance of cash flow between the people who are spending uh, Lightning uh, after having um, 
open the channel and the people who were who had not opened channels and wanted to get paid in lightning i thought this this caused a an imbalance where um the people who were receiving payments in lightning had to basically close their channels or dump them to someone else because had tears for those those uh, so i think i think this is like super positive development um but i i am definitely in the mindset that i don't want hyper bitcoinization to happen right now um uh, from, from the point of view of someone which is like operating an exchange and operating services, um, I, could, I could definitely, and I mean, I'm not a huge company. We're a very small company despite our like big mouth. Um, so uh, if you're like a Coinbase uh, and you're already extremely scaled or a Kraken and you've scaled very well right now, um, you might say, hey, bring on hyper-Bitcoinization. You know, we've got the infrastructure. Um, but there's not a lot of businesses out there that are, that are physically ready for, for hyper-Bitcoinization. I think there might be like maybe 10 or 15 that are like well set up. And I think if there's, you know, hyper-Bitcoinization now, you're gonna have a lot of centralization um, because uh, not a lot of services are available to handle it. So I think, we're, I think we're getting out of the bootstrap phase of Bitcoin. I think we're, you know, there was the first phase which was like the prototype phase. And then we had kind of like the bootstrap phase which I think we're leaving now and then I think we've got maybe a couple of years before we get to the kind of like, maybe not acceleration phase, but the, you know, um, we're kind of leaving, I think we're still kind of, you know, Bitcoin is not, is in beta-ish, uh, you know, 29, 2009 to 2000, let's call it, you know, 2012, um, uh, you know, when we had some, that's, that was maybe the alpha. And now we're kind of like ending the beta stage where, uh, you know, I think, uh, when we have um, some of the main issues on Lightning resolved, we're going to be kind of in the uh, the product launch phase of Bitcoin. But we're not far. We're not far. Um, and, and the kind of issues that I'm talking about are issues that are solved relatively uh, exponentially and quickly. Um, so maybe two, four. You know, if 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 I had to decide when hyper Bitcoinization is going to happen, I would say uh, we need a little more cultural awareness to responsibility first, uh, which I think we're kind of seeing a shift now towards that because like the last 10 years has just been the golden age of millennialism. And, and um, I think people now that are finding themselves unemployed, numb, having no idea what to do. Um, they need a few years, I think, to digest this, this new information about how the world is a dangerous place. Um, and uh, we also need a bit of infrastructure. So, you know, 2023 would be uh, the ideal year for me. 20, nice. 2023, 2024, that's it. Choose a date. We're coming up on time here. Uh, I want to respect you guys' time. I know you have lots of work to do. So, Pierre, do you want to make a few uh, a few sentences here to wrap us up on that idea? Uh, I mean, I, I agree with everything Francis just said. So, um, I don't really nice. have anything to add on that. Okay. So, the debate poll results. Uh, before the debate, we had 11 votes. P uh, the yes answer agreeing with Pierre uh, was 73%. The no answer agreeing with Francis, 27%. After the debate, we had 10 votes, so just one fewer. Uh, 40% uh, agreed with Pierre and 60% agreed with Francis. So Francis, you flipped, you flipped to the room. Um, at least 10 Congratulations, people. Congratulations, so. Francis. <laughs> well done. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Nice. Um, all right. Well, as you guys know, we said this on Twitter yesterday, that uh, YouTube uh, banned our account for posting this event before we even held the event. Uh, I have no idea why the title of the event was completely innocuous. So I, I know today the YouTube censors are watching. They're completely disappointed in both of you. They were obviously expecting a lot of violence uh, and toxicity. You guys were way too civil and polite. 
you know, I appreciate that, but the YouTube sensor is obviously very disappointed. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> nice. um, yeah, thanks for joining us guys. Really appreciate your time. I want uh, to see it, one thing happen. Work. And this, this is, this is obviously an ongoing meme on Twitter. I want to hear Francis say, I am Pierre Rochard and vice versa. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh, me, 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 me and Pierre are basically the same person. Uh, actually, I don't know if, if a few people saw that or didn't see that, but it, it, it turns out that uh, Pierre and I are actually from originally, like from a very uh, close geographic, we're very close geographically. Like, like wherever your mom lived, basically? From uh, the, the Finisterre region of Britain. There might be something uh, to, to that name. But yes, I am absolutely the Rashad. <laughs> I'm Francis Puglia. And today was Swan live. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. We'll wrap there. Appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. On behalf of the Swan team, thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Swan Signal podcast. You should join us live next time. If you weren't able to on this one, jump into our Swan Signal Telegram chat room. We have a lively crew in there chatting during our conversation and asking questions of our guests. It's a lot of fun. You can find that chat at t.me slash swansignal. Swan Signal is a production of Swan Bitcoin at swanbitcoin.com. The best way to buy Bitcoin. We have easy setup of automatic buys. We're focused on stacking sats, not trading. No altcoin distractions. We're forever Bitcoin only. There are automatic withdrawals to your Bitcoin wallet. We're committed to Bitcoin education. Follow us on Twitter at SwanBitcoin and subscribe to the podcast at swansignalpodcast.com. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us.